Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Welcome to Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the Digital First National Museum of American Religion, an institution dedicated to telling the profound story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Listeners, to join the museum effort, go to when sorrow comes com, where you can receive, for a $200 donation, a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. We have all been part of the recent contentious U.S. presidential election, which finally ended in the transfer of power in January of this year. At the museum, we observe that, as usual, a colossal amount of energy, money, time, emotion, concern, debate, argument, tweets, posts, letter writing, editorializing, and protests were invested in the election and its outcome. America was all in. That is, Americans have a deep and meaningful allegiance to perfecting, preserving, and perpetuating the American experiment in self-government. Some religious beliefs even tie into the country's founding and purpose. At the same time, however, we also noted that while that patriotic allegiance is powerful, for a large percentage of Americans, perhaps no longer a majority, at least according to a very recent report, there is most likely something that commands a greater allegiance, and that would be their faith. Many faiths have end-time theologies, including Christianity, which believes in an approaching end of the world and the return of Jesus Christ. So it occurred to us at the museum that religious beliefs about the end of the world may play a large but hidden role in our politics, past, present, and future. If we can understand some of these beliefs about the end of the world and their effects on political behavior, we will be better equipped as citizens trying to see to the success of the American project in the 21st century. Today, we have a fantastic panel of scholars who will, in an hour, help us at least scrape the surface and perhaps even do a deep dive or two. Matthew Sutton, the Barry Family Distinguished Professor in the Liberal Arts at Washington State University and author of American Apocalypse, A History of Amer Modern Evangel Evangelicalism, Matt Harper, 
associate professor of history and Africana studies at Mercer University and author of End of Days. Chris Blythe, research associate at Brigham Young University's Maxwell Institute and author of Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, professor of religious studies at Azusa Pacific University and author of Latino Pentecostal Identity, Evangelical Faith, Self, and Society. Jacqueline Keeler, writer and activist of Diné and Yankton, Dakota Heritage, co-founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Masketry, and author of Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Occupation, Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Lands. Larry Perry, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and Africana Studies at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, who is currently working on a book entitled A Black Spiritual Leftist, Howard Thurman and the Religious Left's Unfinished Business of Race Relations, and finally, William Dingus, Ordinary Professor of Religion and Culture at the Catholic University of America and co-author of Young Adult Catholics, Religion in the Culture of Choice. Thank you each for being with us today. The time is short, and we need your help, so let's jump in. Listeners, there will be a Q&A in the middle of the hour and or at the end of the hour, so please ask any questions via the chat function. First, panelists, help us help the listeners understand the dominant end times beliefs on the American religious landscape. And uh, let's start, let's go ahead and start with Chris Blythe, and then anybody can jump in after that. What do you know? What can you tell us? When I think about the, the more dominant, um, rather than listing off different denominations, I think we see people that are really convinced that there's an imminent apocalyptic event to come. These people are usually interested in the idea of a, a reversal of powers. They see themselves as oppressed. They see society in a way that's not like they would like to see it. Um, I don't always think it's just from the right, although it's certainly dominated from that direction. Um, but we certainly have environmental apocalypticism. apocalypticism um, that's also a major part of our rhetoric today. Um, so I think, uh, and the majority of American minds, and this is all changed with QAnon, of course, as we could talk about it, but uh, um, still in the majority of minds, this end times belief is much more moderate. Um, we can see the sort of apocalyptic, the expectation of an immediate end. Um, at least in my research, I think that's, uh, it's still a, a dominant theme in American history. We can find plenty of groups that hold on to ideas of an imminent second coming and imminent reversal of powers. Um, but I think uh, it'd be interesting to chart from 1980 to the present um, and see how that sort of in um, times belief, whether people believe the second coming, I'm sure someone here has that research, whether the second coming uh, will occur in their own lifetime or whatever apocalyptic event that might be. Um, and I would guess that we have fewer today than we did 40 years ago. Thanks, Chris. Others? Try men, if that's okay. You bet, Arlene. Well, speaking just broadly about Pentecostals, they just love prophecy, any kind of prophecy, personal. And prophecy, what I mean is uh, somebody has this extraordinary knowledge, either about 
their own personal circumstance or about society in general. And then when you latch on to that idea, um, very, very hard to let go. It's, it's a crucial part of the theology. It's a crucial part of who they are. And I think um, maybe throwing it to Matt Sutton, uh, one of the key ideas is that it, outcomes don't matter. The fact that it never happens doesn't matter. <laughs> um, it's more the expectation. Expectation is, is key. And that, that's a strain that goes throughout Pentecostals, whether you're talking about white, African-American, Latinos, at least from our research. Um, it doesn't, it has different targets, but essentially the same idea that the end is coming. It's always been coming and it doesn't matter that it doesn't come. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And for me, the the fascinating thing when I began studying these issues and looking at these questions was the way that it shifts the actions and the mentalities and the the practices of people who believe that the end is coming. Um, I think in the 1970s, 1980s, if you'd read the older literature, you would have seen that people who believed in kind of end of the world apocalyptic prophecy tended to be the least engaged in this world. They were the ones who buried their heads in the sand and were just waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, but that wasn't the lived reality, right? We saw Jerry Falwell, who was organizing the moral majority while he was also preaching the second coming. And Billy Graham, same thing. And so that got me thinking about these questions. And, and what I discovered was that the people who are most eager to see the end of the world are the most active because they are so sure they have so little time and that Jesus is coming back and is going to judge them and is going to hold them accountable for their actions. And so instead of producing indifference, um, apocalyptic theology or apocalyptic beliefs produce more activism, more engagement, more, more effort to try to transform the culture. And, and for me, that, that makes them endless, endlessly fascinating. Jacqueline, what can you share with us from the indigenous people's perspective on end of world beliefs? Yeah, um, can you hear me okay? I just switched to a different microphone. We can. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I think that um, one of the things I really note of course, there were, you know, you look at my own, uh, my father's Dakota Lakota people, of course, they had the ghost dance at the end there. And um, one of my um, ancestors did attend the one that was um, held, uh, um, you know, on the Pine Ridge Reservation before the Wounded Knee Massacre. And um, so we have family stories about what went into that, you know, that sort of desperation, right? But I think, you know, overall, I think that native cultures have a different perspective. Um, there is a sense of like rebirth, you know, rebirth of the world. Um, I know that the Navajo culture, my mother's culture has, uh, you know, where we are in right now in the fourth world, right? Uh, we emerged from the third world um, uh, when it was flooded, um, when coyotes stole the water baby from the water monster and we had to crawl through a reed um, and, and emerge into this world. And then the water was still following us. So then we had to force Coyote to return the water baby. And then we emerged in this world, the glittering world, right? And, um, and of course that's a birth imagery, right? Going through a canal. And, um, and, there, and then when we emerged into this world, we were greeted by the holy people, right? Um, and they came and they, um, they pushed back the water and then they, they brought us corn, nadan, you know, and the, um, and all the things that we needed, the songs we needed to stay in harmony with everything around us, you know, and, um, and the same thing with my father's people, you know, when they became the people of the plains, they were, uh, they, they, they were made 
Dakota or Lakota, when they met the white buffalo calf woman, when she and she was a physical manifestation, a spiritual physical manifestation of the land itself. And they made an agreement with her and they became a people of the Great Plains, right? And and so with that agreement, there's a promise of of accord of, um, and in my book, Stand Off, I go into a great deal of detail comparing the origin or creation stories of a colonial people versus that of an indigenous people. And then the different outcomes that emerge from these origin stories, which I see as algorithmic agreements, and then you have outcomes, right? <laughs> so, um, so I think that with most indigenous stories of creation and of, uh, there's a sense that harmony can be achieved in this world, that we were not sent here to be punished this isn't some sort of punishment from God. This is a, a manifestation of harmony, and um, and that and and that we have a very workable place. I, I suppose my father's people turned to sort of this sort of in time sort of uh, the ghost dance thing when it really seemed like that that was not possible here. And of course, that is the imposition of colonial force. Um, and uh, and of course, certainly. In places like in Israel, and you know, with the ancient Hebrews, they were facing those same forces of colonial oppression, right, um, by an empire. And so, I think that sometimes people feel they have no other way to, to basically create that harmony in their lives. But then they, you know, whether you're talking about peasants in Europe um, facing an overwhelming feudal force, right, overlord, uh, you, they begin to turn to these sorts of um, religious ideologies. And so, you know, I think though, but if you are a people, like an indigenous people, which I imagine the people, European people were, and, and I am of European, I'm, I'm three sixteenths European, um, some French, German, and English. And, and so some of my ancestors definitely participated in those um, ancient ceremonies. And, um, but it's, um, I think that for indigenous people, there is this feeling that you can achieve harmony and balance and, and, and you are in, you are a people who are in an agreement with the very um, essence of the land you live on, right? And, um, and so it, it has a different outcome. Okay. Okay, great. Important voice. Thank you for sharing that. Larry uh, and, and Matt Harper, what's, tell us about the black church and, and end time theologies. What do, what do you know? Yeah, so, um, oh, Matt, you wanted to go? Or no? Okay. Yeah. yeah, so I think kind of end time theologies um, are kind of tied to, for the most part, for black folks, a kind of um, a kind of social end time, right? We can see this as early as, you know, the spirituals, though we do have like this, have these, you know, kind of moves um, or desires, right? for um, this kind of, you know, heavenly hereafter, mostly it's kind of tied to like these kind of social, um, these social ills, right? Calling for, lamenting, um, praying for, um, hoping for, right? Um, a kind of, for God to come in and, 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 you know, work things out, for God to call and come and bring justice, right? So, I mean, you kind of see this playing out. I'm more of a, a 20th century guy, Matt, so you can help me out a little bit. Um, no, I think you're right, uh, Larry, uh, that, that what, you, what you're seeing in the 20th century has deep roots, right? That um, uh, in, you know, what, what Chris was saying earlier, and I think what Jacqueline was saying too, is that um, 
apocalyptic theologies often have a sense of being both an embattled and a favorite people. So that is that some that that the people are are um, minorities. They are um, embattled. They're not in control. The world's not going the way it's supposed to be going. They're oppressed. Uh, none of that has to be imaginary for Black people in America. That's real, right? That's very a very real sense of oppression. Um, but there's also this sense that it's not just that end times or that apocalypse that you're looking at. That is attached to some bigger way of understanding the world that allows people to re-narrate history and who is God's favored people, uh, what, will, what will justice look like in the future, where are we heading? Um, and so um, I think we see lots of examples of Black people in America um, resisting the narratives that the country would say, that Black people have no past, that they don't have an importance, that there isn't a role for them in the future. And apocalyptic theology says, no, actually, we are a favored people. We do have a past and we can imagine an, uh, uh, the cart being upturned. We can imagine a world where there's real justice. I mean, we see that in Nat Turner's rebellion uh, in Virginia. Uh, is um, He launches a violent overthrow of slavery uh, because he thinks an apocalyptic event is coming, right? That he's been chosen by God and he can imagine a world where slavery doesn't exist. Um, we see the nation of Islam uh, um, in non-Christian theology uh, saying the same thing. There is a black past, it's glorious, it's triumphant, and there is coming a moment in world history where black people again will be ascendant and they'll be in control and, and, um, and white oppression day is over, right? There is a way of, of saying, this theology says, hey, actually we matter and we can imagine a world very different from the world that we're living in right now. Right, exactly. And it comes with a kind of warning also, right? That goes between, you know, the spirituals all the way until, you know, my folks in the late 20th, in the mid to late 20th century. So we could look at say, you know, Malcolm X where he's warning, right? Of this racial powder keg that is that is soon to happen. We can look at um, Martin King where he dies with the, with the sermon, you know, why America might go to hell, right? Or even, you know, um, James Baldwin in his classic, The Fire Next Time, where he's, where he's saying, you know, I, you know, I have it right here with me. Um, if we do not dare everything, the fulfillment of the prophet, that prophecy recreated from the Bible in song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time, end quote, right? So we can kind of see this playing out for James Baldwin. If we, you know, the relatively conscious whites, relatively conscious blacks and other folk, right? Do not try to set this world aright, you know, pretty much things are going to fall apart. Um, and so, you know, in this case, this is Baldwin also playing off of, what is it? I got a home in it at rock. Don't you see, right? Sung by my favorite Fisk Jubilee singers, right? So there's that constant, I'm with the Fisk. There's this constant move. I got to plug it. But yeah, so, you know, I think this is the, this is definitely the move within Black, um, Black religious spaces. Even folks like Baldwin and Malcolm X, who, you know, don't find themselves within the folds of Christianity. Okay. Uh, William, give us some Catholic perspective. 
All right, thank you, Chris. Uh, hi to everyone. I'm delighted to be here and appreciate being part of this uh, discussion. I may be something of an outlier or uh, a squeaky wheel here in the sense that um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, at least kind of officially speaking, this apocalyptic discourse has not been a primary idiom of how Catholics understand their place in the world, geopolitical events, and so forth. Um, and this is in part, I think, largely due to the influence of, of St. Augustine's thought. Um, Catholicism generally abides by that uh, Matthew 24, 36, uh, but of that day and hour, no one knows uh, in terms of uh, not feeding, you know, speculation about uh, end times. Um, like, I'm assuming most other Christian traditions, there certainly is a sense in Catholicism of the importance of, you know, individuals being vigilant uh, about the end, uh, being ready, of course, you know, if and when that comes. Uh, there's also a sense uh, of, um, that, you know, concerns about false prophets in this regard. Um, one of the things that's always kind of fascinated me psychologically about apocalyptic, apocalypticism in the Western tradition if you think about this, you know, this is a form of discourse, it's a narrative, uh, it's a, a theological worldview that has consistently and unambiguously uh, been repudiated for over 2000 years. And not only does it not go away, uh, you know, it, it, it can gain strength over time, uh, which begs the question of what, what is so compelling about something that, you know, a belief system that has been so consistently disconfirmed uh, and yet does not go away, if you will. Uh, there's, there's also, there's a recognition in the, the uh, Catholic tradition too that uh, apocalypticism, particularly when it gets linked up with the excesses of nationalism uh, and a kind of Manichaean worldview, us versus them, good versus evil, uh, that uh, this can make, uh, you know, dialogue and political goodwill, if you will, uh, quite, uh, quite difficult. Um, if we take the uh, documents of Vatican II, uh, and particularly a document that Pope St. John Paul II issued uh, in conjunction with the Jubilee year 2000, this Tertio Millennio uh, Adveniente, uh, and, and you read these documents, you get a, a very strong sense of the importance, at least for Catholics, of cultivating the world, of engaging it, of transforming of it, of attempting to redeem it, and so forth. The importance of building community, working for justice, struggling for peace, and so forth. Um, uh, one kind of motto associated with his thought was this, be not afraid. Uh, and it strikes me that uh, fear is, 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 is an integral kind of psychological component of apocalypticism. Now, having said this, that uh, apocalypticism has not been uh, a, a kind of a general uh, Catholic thing, so to speak, in terms of specific end time speculation, that does not mean, of course, that these, this, these kinds of ideas have not manifested themselves within the Catholic tradition. Uh, they, they obviously have. And there are three uh, particular venues in which within Catholicism, you can see this uh, bubbling up, if you will, of, uh, of apocalyptic thought. And uh, I, I can mention those later. But okay. so here I just say that uh, I think Catholicism uh, uh, comes at this in a little bit different a little bit different way. Thank you. Good voice to have. Jacqueline, did you want to say something or Arlene? I, I heard yeah, someone. I, I guess what he's saying really does um, underline the idea that apocalyptic thinking is, is for the powerless. 
I mean, for so many centuries in Europe, um, the Roman church was the, was the, um, you know, uh, the inheritor of the power of the imperator, the Roman empire, you know, and, um, and so was not interested in change, <laughs> you know, uh, that was not their interest was maintaining the status quo. Thank you. And William, something you said reminded me of what Arlene said about these prophecies never being fulfilled for so long. Arlene's comment was, that doesn't matter, right? If it's a prophecy that the outcome, I guess, is, is a minor thing, it's the prophecy itself that, that has the power and continues and sort of independent of the outcome. Well, thank you. Please, I think Chris Blythe and then Matt or, or both of you, yeah, whatever. I just wanted to underscore that. I really think that's an important point that Jacqueline made and, and William also. Uh, the idea, so in my book, you know, Terrible Revolution, what I'm trying to look at is this Latter-day Saint experience, what we often call Mormons, and, and watching them as they were once a people who thought they were so oppressed that they need to leave the nation and then spent a hundred years trying to create self-rule, you know, couldn't get statehood and so on. And really how that all changes once statehood's achieved, right? So Latter-day Saints, now we have, a, you know, what I argue, a folk apocalypticism. It exists on the ground amongst people, but the institution itself is just policing that, right? You don't want to change the power once you've tasted a little bit of it. If, you're, if you have Mitt Romney running for president, you don't really think everything needs to change. Things look pretty good. And as a result of that, the, the largest... You know, I think there's more of what Arlene's talking about, certainly an idea of prophecy, but the idea of an apocalyptic, that reversal of power, uh, would be very controversial to put forward, right? People would want to tamp that down um, for a more moderate millennialism. That's important. Thanks. Chris, Matt, did you want to say something? Yeah, Harper? I, just, I do agree with what the other panelists have said, that apocalyptic theology has a real amazing resilience and elasticity. It's flexible enough that it somehow can accommodate defeat after defeat, you know, that it doesn't, the prophecies don't come true and somehow they can be revised. So the world's going to end in 1988. I mean, 1989, 1992, you can, those can, dates can be pushed back as the prophecy, prophecies go unfilled. But some of these apocalyptic movements actually did see their prophecies come to true come to pass there are lots of pro prophetic voices in the black tradition that prophesied the coming of the civil war and emancipation in terms that eerily matched the actual historical conditions that came later on um, people expecting there will be a dramatic moment in time and a uh, role reversal um, people predicting it and then emancipation came and people who've been enslaved were sitting in the state legislatures three years later, right? There was this massive role reversal that took place. So sometimes these apocalyptic movements continue despite the prophecies not coming true, but sometimes they actually, these communities make prophecies that do, that do actually become fulfilled in one way or the other. I would take something like what happened with the Branch Davidians as, as being a kind of a contemporary illustration of that in terms of I mean, tragically and ironically, that uh, in terms of government action and what happened there, that it, it really became a, a self-fulfilling prophecy for the Davidians. Okay, thank you. This frames the, the discussion, the further discussion, very well. Now I'd like to move uh, for our listeners into how have these beliefs in end times um, affected American political behavior throughout our history? So I put that question out to the panelists. Can we get a few examples 
of of that uh, 18th century, 19th century, into the 20th century, and then we'll move towards today. I can jump in on on mid 20th century, but I think you wanted to start earlier. But sorry, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, for me, it's it's the for the mostly white evangelicals that I've studied, they tend to believe if we're moving towards the end times, part of why they think we're moving towards the end times is they're seeing signs in national and especially in global events that are fulfilling biblical prophecy. And so they, they've kind of laid out a pretty specific scheme and they laid it out in the 1870s, 1880s, and then they watch over time as these predictions are fulfilled, or at least as they see them fulfilled. And so what it does is it tells them as we're getting closer to the end times, you need to be aware of a series of things. And a couple of those, the, the most obvious ones are um, totalitarian leaders and global organizations, because both of those things are ultimately going to pave the way for the rise of the Antichrist. And so one of the things that kind of instigated my research at the very beginning, which I was doing in the Obama years, was I couldn't understand what it meant to be an evangelical and be against state health care. And then that drove me to realize the bigger problem is the state, that they're suspicious of skeptical of the state. And so we can see this developing in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And so I think part of what the Republican Party has done is that their rhetoric, their kind of anti-federal, anti-statist rhetoric appeals to evangelicals because evangelicals already have this preconceived idea that we should be suspicious of the state, that we're going to ultimately cede our power to some kind of overlords through the government. And so that that has shaped their their policies and their politics for 100 years now. I, I would like to comment on that because my book, uh, Standoff, really looks very carefully at the Bundy family. And um, in my book, Standoff, I, I covered both uh, the Bundy takeover of Malheur uh, here in Oregon in 2016. And then I also covered the, uh, the D Dakota Access Pipeline, um, you know, um, uh, <laughs> uh, camp uh, up in uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and um, where my family has historical ties. And um, but I, I really uh, wanted to understand the Bundy family. I, I did a direct comparison um, philosophically and historically um, between the Bundy's uh, philosophy, which they sort of have a, a book, um, um, if you can call that, called the Book of Nay, uh, where they, it's sort of a philosophical um, sort of accumulation of a scrapbook of different things. And uh, two, uh, my, my, my grandmother's family's writing, um, a number of her family members are writers, have written for the last hundred years, um, kind of synthesizing their ideas about the Dakota and Lakota culture and the, um, and the American experience. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, her family are the Delorias. And um, so I, uh, her, her cousin wrote the book, God is Red, Custer Died for Your Sins. And my great great aunt Ella wrote a number of books, which are very fundamental. And, um, but uh, uh, one of the things I really wanted to understand was where they got these ideas from. And obviously you can look at the constitution and what the relationship was to power. Um, and, and I think that what we saw during the Trump years was that their, their, their assumed relationship to power was far more real than we had really thought. Um, I think, or many people understood, I think that there is, uh, and, and I really looked at the county, the relationship with county governments, because in all of these places, you're dealing with county governments, whether you're talking about Morton County in North Dakota, which was, you know, actually had an armed assault on the Standing Rock Sioux Nation, you know, um, in modern times, and um, and then, um, or, or Harney County in, in Oregon, or, you know, I, my previous book was about Bears Ears, and there you're looking at San Juan County 
in Utah, which was actually found guilty of um, oppressing, of, of violating the Voting Rights Act um, and, and preventing Navajos from voting, who were the majority in the county. And I think that, and looking at the Mormon Church at their, uh, you know, their acquisition of land, of um, of power, and and then really tapping into the resources provided by the federal government at the county level. And this is why you see uh, the Bundys and these folks turning to this county supremacy ideology, which is a, a non-legally, <laughs> uh, it's a legal idea, but it's really not based on any legal uh, um, actual law. Um, but it's this idea that the sheriff is the most powerful person in the world within the county itself. He's more powerful than the president of the United States. He's more powerful than literally anyone in the world. And, and this idea that it goes back to this old English uh, common law where the people uh, the sheriff was a representative of the uh, of the old Anglo-Saxon people, and uh, this is an incorrect interpretation of history, which I go into, and uh, and so there's this push and pull between, you know, what I felt the Bundys were doing is that they were asserting their rights as colonists, as colonial victors to the spoils, you know, on their own terms, right, and they're using a sort of um, a, a muddled understanding, but a very effective understanding of English common law, right? And the Bundys themselves are of English descent. Their ancestors actually came over here in the 1600s as Quakers, right? And uh, to North Carolina. And, uh, and, and the Bundy, the name itself re re refers to um, a very old system where um, a man would give an oath his bound, bound him, bind himself to a feudal leader and get land in return, right? And then allegedly uh, under Norman rule, this actually became serfdom where the, the Bundys were actually inherited with the land itself. They were, they were actually part of the land. And um, so it's, um, so it refers to being, you know, a serf, right? right. Um, which is a very different relationship to the land than what indigenous people have, right? right. And, uh, and so it was very, you know, I think that looking at that history, um, I really think a lot of what we're dealing with, with the um, this relate these relationships we're seeing playing out today in the 21st century, actually go to that time period of um, right before the English Civil War. And a lot of the language that they're using to describe their situation is coming from that really important period when you have the enclosure of the land, you have the peasants being pushed off the land, you have you know the, ri the rise of factories. I mean, the Mormons, the first places they went to go and do their missions was in Liverpool and Manchester, factory cities where Dickensian conditions existed. And you know, I read the um, the diaries of these saints, and they were starving to death, even though they were working full time. So it was a really interesting push and pull of a landless people. I mean, even to this day, most of the land in England and, and Scotland are owned by the descendants of William the Conqueror. I mean, it was a very effective move to come and invade. And um, you know, it's uh, it's not private. Private ownership is not really very common in the British Isles. And and so coming here and demanding land. And then the and then I trace the origins of the Revolutionary War to a demand for land. Um, King George III, uh, you know, basically issued in 1763 the Proclamation Line, which was the Appalachian Mountains, of which he said the colonists were not allowed to pass, and the rest of that land would be Indian land, right? So you know they were opposed to this. And and if you read the rest of the Declaration of Independence, the um, you know you will see that it's all about that, you know, where he calls. 
you know, they call us in, uh, merciless savages working for the King George III. You know, this is all about land and the acquisition of land. And so oh, I, what I see, yeah. Apocalypticism is all about the acquisition of land? I would say that the, um, the relationship to power is utilized very, um, the, the, the crafting of language and the, the pushing of ideas is utilized in, in very instinctively in ways that help them acquire power, right? And so when, you know, I think that when you're looking at that, you have to understand that these are actually political moves. Yeah. Oh, I think that's really interesting. And I think that's right that, you know, even you give the example of Latter-day Saints, you know, so when I write my book about Latter-day Saint apocalypticism. I started that first chapter of reimagining America, right? Reimagining the people here. And so I think that's, that is really important for apocalyptic about, is about the future, but it's also playing off on this older conversation and certainly is a lens uh, to, to the major question for me, this is a lens for politics, Yes, uh, I think a lot well, of times I look we get at the, so caught up in the apocalyptic argument itself. Um, sometimes we can dismiss it because of that, or we can, you know, get obsessed with it because of that. But I look at what happened in upstate New York in the burned over region. Um, my, I should say my husband is Iroquois and his ancestor, he's a direct descendant of Chief Joseph Brandt, who led the um, the fight against the colonists, Jamine. And, and of course, they acquired the Iroquois Confederacy, which had stood for a thousand years. And, uh, and so when you see these folks coming in there, um, you will see that they, you, when you read what their reactions were, was they were shocked because what this was evidence of was, was of a civilization that existed that was not in the Bible, a very ancient civilization that they could see all around them, do you know I mean, um, that had existed that was, and it was a very challenging moment for them, you know, because it challenged their very idea of the cosmos, right? And so you get this sort of religious reaction to it. They're, they're in the wilderness, literally, you know I mean, and, um, but also, you know, I just I was actually just doing research the other day, um, looking at John D. Because I was really surprised to notice that John D. was using many of the same many of the same techniques as Joseph Smith had used. And what I found was that there was this huge connection to Dartmouth College, of which which is my alma mater. And um, and uh, apparently Joseph Smith's uh, relative was one of the first professors there, uh, John Smith. And if you look at his actual, uh, what he was teaching there, it was very, I mean, it was, they have a, um, some of the alumni had done a 20 point sort of take of his, his lectures and stuff. And it was almost exactly what came out of the, um, the um, Joseph Smith's work. It's almost word for, I mean, the exact same ideology. And so, um, which was being created at Dartmouth College. Um, Cause I had sort of assumed that this was a folk magic sort of, you know, these were poor people who were, you know, they were um, importing folk magic from their own countries. And, um, but apparently no, it's actually sort of a remnant of the Renaissance understanding of that sort of middle ground between, you know, studying angels, you know, um, and also uh, understanding science. Jacqueline, let me let me ask a question here to the broader group. In the in the twentieth century, I read about a lot of um, I read a lot about premillennialism and postmillennialism, and what that drove in the public square, what that drove people to do. Um, who here in the panel can can help our listeners understand these concepts of premillennialism and postmillennialism, and what that did to American politics? in the 20th century. I think that will help us. Yeah, I'm happy to take a stab at it if, if anybody wants to jump in. Um, uh, so 
premillennial and postmillennial are about the dating of an apocalyptic event. When, when Christ's second coming, will it come before the prophesied a thousand years of peace or will it come after the prophesied a thousand years of peace? Um, and that seems like it's a technical quibbling within um, Christian theology, but it has really profound consequences in American history because those who believe in a premillennial worldview that Christ's return will come first do not expect this world to achieve peace and justice before Jesus returns. They imagine and sometimes that the world may go to hell in a handbasket and then Christ returns and then um, some apocalyptic event changes this, the landscape. Uh, but post-millennialists post often were expecting the world to change here and now, that it would that there would be a reign of peace, there would be a reign of justice that would take place um, in, in this uh, moment and that Christ would come at the end to, uh, to uh, sort of welcome what had already uh, taken place. Um, and so I, there were a lot in the early 20th century of post-millennialists who thought that we were entering the millennium. That is that, that there was going to be peace through maybe through uh, religious uh, growth, but maybe also through more secular means like um, creating the League of Nations or uh, and leading to peace between nations or through uh, scientific movements to improve sanitation and the way that we live our lives, that we could have a, a wonderful reign of peace. Uh, that took a real beating with the First World War and the Great Depression and the Second World War and the Holocaust. It made it harder for people to say, oh, we're, we're welcoming this beautiful reign of peace. Um, you know, African-Americans were never really taken in by that. Uh, uh, because the world didn't seem always that it was uh, the, any, any day now, everything was going to be just right if we just gradually keep marching towards peace. Um, but I wonder if that connects to some of the things that Jacqueline was talking about. Like, there are these aspects of apocalyptic thinking that you see in powerful people who are not expecting for the cart to be overturned. Um, but and those would be a sense of being a favored people and that there is a destiny that God has given his favored people this destiny and that empowers them to live out that destiny. And whether that destiny is to take over land from coast to coast, uh, um, whether that is for the U.S. to be the superpower that rules the world, right, is that the sense of favored status and God's protection or God's sort of having a plan for those favored people. Um, could look really different depending on who those favored people are and what the destiny is supposed to be. Um, you know, I really like what uh, Al Rabito once said, which is that the white America's claim to be the new Israel, to be the new people favored by God, uh, was always contradicted by old Israel enslaved in her midst. <laughs> Right. But that they were all in when and um, whether these. So uh, who is the favored people? Um, I don't know. Maybe Matt could help us out. What, what how how American nationalism, this idea that America is the favored people of God, how that fits with white evangelical, who, many who embrace that line of thinking fits with this deep suspicion of government that the U.S. is sort of the enemy, but is also maybe God's favored people. Matt, do you want to? I, mean, I love all the 
contradictions with with these folks. But the, that shift happened for them during World War II, that they were very um, anti-nationalist in World War One and in the 1920s. They thought Wilson's crusade to make the world safe for democracy was a joke. Many of them were pacifists. Um, they were just, they were just not willing to to bear arms for the state. But they paid a price for it a political and a social price in the 1920s, and they recognized that. So as we move towards war in the 1930s, they were convinced that World War II was going to lead to Armageddon, was going to lead to the apocalypse. And so they sort of carved out a new theological position, which they looked at Jesus' statement. Oh, crap. It's been too long since I've been in Sunday school. I can't remember if it's Revelation or if it was one of Jesus' statements, but about separating the sheep from the goats. Um, and they, they took that as a, as a nationalist idea. It wasn't just about individuals separating the faithful from the faithless, but also separating the faithful nations from the faithless nations. And the, so they could be simultaneously nationalistic and anti-status because they believe that you could have your nation most aligned with God so that when the judgment comes, you will escape the majority of his judgment. Um, but at the same time, and it, this really feeds into why I think they like Trump so much because he's unilateral, he's isolationist, he's America first, but he's also very interventionist in the sense that he wants to create doors around the world for American influence and American power. And so for evangelicals, it's about missionary fields. And so they, they believe that their nation is going to help them protect their missionary work, which is gonna get more people saved as we approach the end times. But at the same time, you can simultaneously be critical of the United Nations or the League of Nations or the UN Security Council, because those kinds of things will lead us to one world government. Because of time, let, let me ask, uh, before we move to some of the last questions, Arlene or Chris Blythe, uh, Larry or William, anything to add as far as influence over the course of United States history of end of end of world beliefs? Quick comment here or there, Arlene. Yeah, just real quick, um, just to dovetail on what Matt said, most of Trump's inner circle while they were white evangelicals, a lot of them were Pentecostal. His most influential, um, what is it, the, the woman who was praying, I'm sure you saw the main, Paula Kane White, uh, big in the uh, Pentecostal world. Two of his, what is it called, the even, his evangelical advisory council were fairly well-known Latino Pentecostals. Um, not a lot has been done to kind of unpack what all that means. But definitely the idea that um, uh, they, they share a lot of similarities, uh, Trump and Pentecostal, particularly televangelists, which we should kind of separate out. Those that make their living kind of on television, through popular media, uh, through speeches and conferences and things, and then the grassroots. They are they tend to be different people. But uh, certainly that... that uh, um, that field certainly needs to be looked at. Thanks, Arlene. Chris, Larry, or William? Yep, William. Okay, yeah, I, uh, just very, very briefly, I said earlier that there were three ways that this apocalypticism kind of surfaces, surfaces within popular Catholic culture. One has been through uh, the cult of the Virgin Mary, particularly in relationship to apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary and so forth. And uh, most of these, uh, again, don't relate specifically to uh, the end of the world per se, but they come with themes and motifs of chastisement, that the world uh, is uh, you know, going to hell, so to speak, uh, that there's immorality and what have you. Anyway, in the late 19th, early 20th century, one of the dominant mo motifs in these apparitions, and Fatima being uh, uh, the sort of exemplar of this, 
was uh, the uh, spread of atheistic communism. Uh, and what this did was to, uh, in a sense, spiritualize uh, Catholic anti-communism and also, in a, said, in a sense, fed a certain kind of Catholic American nationalism insofar as the United States uh, was seen as this sort of bulwark against the spread of atheistic communism. Um, so that would be, in my mind, an example of kind of a connection between uh, uh, apocalyptic thinking in, in the Catholic context uh, and and uh, a national theme in terms of America's role in uh, in uh, stopping or resisting uh, atheistic communism. Uh, obviously, given the uh, geopolitical status of communism today, that that doesn't play in quite the same way. This was also Thanks, another way for Catholics to be, uh, uh, you know, to appear as being pro-American and uh, uh, in light of anti-Catholic prejudice and discrimination because this anti-communism in the Cold War era was something on which most Americans were on the same page, so to speak. So it legitimated, yeah. uh, spiritualized and legitimated the Catholic presence. Thanks, William. Larry, anything to add before we move to a... a, t a I think that, you know, with the, with the, you know, the presidency of Obama, I think a lot of white folks had a kind of apocalyptic, um, well, if it wasn't, you know, religious, it was certainly the sacredness of whiteness, right? And it's the kind of concern that, you know, I've never seen so many, you know, newspapers and magazines that had, who are we now? Who do we take ourselves to be now that our face is black, right? And I think that, you know, there's a certain refutation that Trump, that the, you know, the Trump presidency kind of takes on where it is, you know, we will preserve our whiteness, our sacred whiteness, um, that I think is an undertow here. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Larry. I want to get to the last, uh, jumping to um, the last question, the most important thing, and we don't have too much time because we also have a, at least one question from an attendee that I want to get to. But what I want the panelists to, to, to talk about here is how are American religious beliefs about the end times influencing politics today, influencing American political behavior today? I know we mentioned a few minutes ago, early in the hour, that it's waned since the 20th century, even the beginning of the 21st century. But what does it look like? What do those beliefs, how, is their, uh, how are they acting on the political stage in America? Chris Blythe, I'm going to start with you. Give us some wisdom here. You know, I think absolutely when we look at uh, major protests today, QAnon, uh, the events at the end of President Trump's presidency, um, all of that is has an apocalyptic backbone to it. And the, the religious language has largely been removed, but not entirely. Um, certainly the, the conflict between a good and an evil, the idea that there's a sort of messianic figure um, that's going to overturn um, negative elements of our society, that there's a conspiracy going through it, is all playing out and it's united. Um, a lot of uh, a particular right-wing American. On the other side, it's also provided a lens for others to dismiss them. Um, and they're of course doing that to themselves at some level here in the language of conspiracy. Um, but it's really, it's, it's an example to me of how this apocalyptic has worked in um, of just how polarized America is. And language, uh, the metaphor, the religion of it um, is just a way of expressing that polarization. I think that's really a, an excellent point. And I mean, uh, we are seeing a, 
apocalyptic responses right now politically, which of course are tied to QAnon and to the uh, idea idea that Trump is the savior. Uh, and and I, I think that less people are, are simply um, marginalizing that sort of um, thing because of what happened at the Capitol um, in January, where they actually uh, you know stormed the Capitol. It happened actually in late December here in Oregon as well. Our, the Salem um, Capitol was also um, entered by armed um, um, right-wing um, folks. And uh, I think it's, it's becoming more and more pressing, which is why I think um, when I worked on standoff, I really looked at how do we bridge that gap? And, and by looking at the history and how these different things came together, I think it's, it's more pressing than ever. Thanks, Jacqueline. You're right. I, I agree with Chris, I mean, in, in the sense of the the, the religious sort of backbone of conspiracy theories. But in my, my own mind, I'm more convinced that the, uh, that conspiracy theories, you know, all of which are not religious in overtone, but that these in some ways play a more central role these days uh, than traditional, you know, theological or religious inspired apocalypticism. I mean, my own sense of, of, you know, the Catholics that were storming the Capitol were down there. I suspect, you know, more of them were motivated by, by conspiracy theory than they were by anything having to do with theological apocalypticism. Um, I just, uh, I, I think the apocalypticism has become more secularized, if you will, or, or untethered from conventional theological formulas and what have you. Uh, they haven't completely disappeared, obviously, but. There is a deep Christian element though, and, and certainly the right-wing militia here in the Pacific Northwest are deeply tied to right-wing Christian groups that are yeah. around up north of Spokane, you know, so. Sure. Right. They're waving the flag, Jesus 2020 for a reason. Yeah. Right. Throughout the ride on January 6th. Right. We're dressing up as Book of Mormon figures. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there a priest who was exercising? Uh, who yes. He had in trouble. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they did that. Well, the, the Catholic Church did an exorcism here in Portland. Uh, marching through the streets and exercising the Black Lives Matter protest area. Oh. Mm. Let me, uh, well, before we move to the, the question from one of our listeners, uh, Matt, either Matt, or Arlene, or Larry, anything to add to end of world beliefs in 2021 and their effect on politics? Okay. I'll just say that um, it'll be interesting to see what a democratic administration does if this kind of reinvigorates at least the evangelical and the more conservative Mormon apocalyptic beliefs. Um, because I've seen over the 20th century, there's a cycle with more liberal presidencies, there tends to be a, an upsurge in apocalyptic thinking. So, so I'm expecting that to happen, but hoping I'm wrong. Does this, before I get to this question, what, what does this do? How do, others in the world view America in this sense. That is, we're superpower, we're first world country, we're very religious compared to others. We have some of these religious beliefs that seem outside of, uh, you know, outside of the box, if you will, uh, end of world beliefs, they still hold some sway here. Any thoughts, any research, any understanding of how others throughout the world view America in this way?
Arlene, I know that the, the center of, of Pentecostalism is no longer, is not the United States, right? But it's, it's, sure. a, <laughs> it's a global movement. And I wonder how much, in some ways, the U.S. is an outlier. In some ways, the U.S. is an exporter of this kind of religious thinking. It's an exporter of religious thinking because the media networks are extensive. And um, so what you hear here on, um, you know, it used to be big TBN, but mostly social media, uh, tons of social media, tons of YouTube that uh, goes to Latin America, Asia, Africa. Um, number one is exporting something, prosperity gospel, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is uh, a lot of the conspiracy theories. A lot of, so I think, uh, William, when you mentioned that it's become secularized or, or changed, that it's kind of married itself to apocalypticism is very close to what I think we're seeing is conspiracy theories merged with apocalyptus. Uh, we haven't talked about this and it's too late, but uh, the anti-vaccine idea that is predominant in a lot of Pentecostal circles, not only because of their historic uh, dislike of allopathic medicine, Western medicine, but uh, the idea that it's it uh, contains, you know, Bill Gates's right yeah. letter. Um, what's that called? Mark for the Beast. I ha- I've, ne- I've never been to Sunday school, and I don't know what. Yeah, okay, there we go. Right. <laughs> Just so interesting. The Seven Hundred Club, right as these conspiracies were were brewing, came out and said the vaccine probably isn't the mark of the beast. Right. <laughs> so there is this conversation that's really interesting and sometimes uh, different than we just guess. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Here's the question and anybody can, can take a shot at it. What are the political maps of the end time in different traditions? Those maps are anticipated today and reflected by political views. I have found this to be the case in the Middle East in Muslim, Christian, and Orthodox Jewish end views. I'm not sure if I understand that question. Um, if anybody does, uh, let's give a shot at answering it. If not, I can communicate via email. We can get this answered for him. Is Charles here asking what um, what do these different views think the future is uh, is going to be? What's going to happen first, second, third, fourth, fifth in the future? Like what and how does that shape the, the political landscape? Is that the question? I think he's talking about geography. Okay. Middle East. And so in a Latter-day Saint tradition, you can see that America became really important, but that's where the Redeemer Nation ideas that Matt was pointing to as well. America, Jerusalem, the Middle East are these two pillars of American apocalypticism, I think for most conservative traditions. Um, Latter-day Saints are having their own internal arguments really about the importance. Is it the United States or is it the Americas that are part of this? I wonder what other conversations are undergoing. And partly, you know, it's usually not Europe, so. Yeah. I think the, um, the indigenous perspective, uh, you know, when you talk about what other countries think, I mean, the native nations within the United States are countries. You know, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are sovereign nations within the United States. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and we have perspectives on um, on the uh, on this uh, this um, phenomenon of end times ideology. Um, of course, some native citizens are Christians as well. And um, but uh, but we do feel like, of course, looking at it from the climate change issue that the, it is greatly threatened. I also live here in the Pacific Northwest where we have Hanford, which is um, the uh, most um, polluted place 
uh, in this hemisphere. And, um, and I know that uh, it's quite dangerous. I mean, even a small amount of the uh, waste there could um, literally wipe out uh, most of the population of this hemisphere <laughs> it's, uh, if it's distributed properly um, or improperly. And, um, and yet it's something that we seem to be unable to get our minds around, right? And, um, and, yeah. and yet it's a very serious issue and, um, and, and really threatens everyone here. Thank you. Larry, uh, I see uh, Matt asked you if you wanted to answer anything about the geography for black religious movements. Any, any thoughts there? Um, maybe. Historically, Larry, about the, way, the, the, the role that Africa plays in the, in the political imagination for black religious movements. Uh, back to Africa movements start in the 18th century. Um, um, they're all throughout the 19th century. They're central to, to Garvey's movement in the 20th century, one, one faith, one God, one destiny. And that destiny is uh, centered in a, in a political state that will be in Africa. Um, uh, does, does there, is, are there still, is there still a geography that matters for black religious movements that would, um, uh, uh, that take, take black religious thinkers outside of the United States or imagine I would say maybe the, the Hebrew Israelites, right? Um, I mean, I think that's the closest thing to like a 21st century, late 20th century group. Um, but outside of them, I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain. I can't think of anything offhand. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're they're making major, you know, one of my uh, future colleagues, she just got hired at UT, um, is actually working on this and talks about their, their presence in, you know, in Israel in a few other spaces, but, you know, in South Africa as well, but yeah, no other major movement I can think of offhand. Thanks, Larry. You know, one thing I think is the internal. So five percenters speak about parts of New York with languages Medina and Mecca, right? And so I wonder if we could find more, but it's all new religious movements, right? It's not the larger. Well, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, we have been listening to Matthew Sutton, author of American Apocalypse, Matt Harper, author of End of Days, Christopher Blythe, author of Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse, Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, author of Latino Pentecostal Identity, Evangelical Faith, Self and Society, Jacqueline Keeler, author of Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Occupation, Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Lands, Larry Perry, author of the forthcoming book, A Black Spiritual Leftist, Howard Thurman and the Religious Left's Unfinished Business of Race Relations, and William Dingus, author of Young Adult Catholics, Religion in the Culture of Choice. The Startup Digital First National Museum of American Religion is both a place of convening for discussions about current national issues where religion or the idea of religious freedom is in play, as we are doing today, and the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Listeners, once again, to join the museum effort, please go to whensorrowcomes.subscribemenow.com where you can, for a $200 donation, Receive a signed copy of When Sorrow Comes, a book by Melissa Mathis about sermons that have come to the aid of America during times of national crisis. 
Jacqueline, Chris, Matt, Sutton, Matt Harper, William, Larry, and Arlene, thank you so very much for being with us today. You have supplied all of us with information that will help us in the coming days participate with more success in the public square. And at the same time, you have helped us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. Thank you very much for your time and your expertise today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you, everyone. Take care. Stay safe. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.